My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people that are facing many different struggles, talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Stephen Harrison and Ashley Mollison. For those of us who aren't among the targets, it can be difficult to see the extent to which many cities are actively hostile to the presence of certain groups of people. This hostility is often produced by a mix of the physical construction of spaces, policies and practices regulating how space gets used, policing that actively targets poor and racialized people, and at times, middle-class political mobilization that invokes buzzwords like safe and clean and renewal to target people who are poor, indigenous, black, homeless, or otherwise marginalized. And not only can it be hard for the rest of us to perceive, it can also be hard for those of us who don't bear the brunt of it to fully appreciate how incredibly deliberate this targeting often is, especially when there is money to be made by taking an area that was once at least somewhat welcoming to poor and homeless people and completely remaking it in order to make money. Stephen Harrison and Ashley Mollison both live in Victoria, British Columbia. Harrison is, among other things, a writer and researcher, and recently he has been publishing a blog called Needs More Spikes to document the city's increasing use of what's called defensive architecture. That is, elements of built form that are meant to displace, discipline, and regulate poor and homeless people in their use of urban space. Mollison is an organizer with the Alliance Against Displacement, a group based in Victoria, Vancouver, and the lower mainland of BC that organizes with indigenous and working-class people, particularly people who are poor and homeless. Uh, And for listeners who are interested in a more thorough exploration of the work of the Alliance Against Displacement in the mainland context, please search on rabble.ca or talkingradical.ca for the episode of the show from December 2016 with Herb Varley and Ivan Drury. According to today's guests, in the last decade, Victoria has become much, much more hostile towards poor and homeless people. There's a housing crisis, rents are skyrocketing, the shelter system is inadequate, there are bylaws that limit where and when people who have no other place to go can take refuge in public spaces, police actively target poor and homeless people, A 10-month-long tent city in 2015 and 2016 faced vocal and organized opposition from middle-class residents, and, while it ultimately won both legal and political victories that resulted in 147 new units of social housing in a province that otherwise no longer builds social housing, this was implemented by the government in a form that is highly regulated and surveilled, and that feels for many residents less like home and more like living in an oppressive institution. And throughout the city, in many different forms, there is increasing use of defensive architecture, in large part because policies by the city and the police have aggressively pushed for the inclusion of defensive architecture in all new development and redevelopment. Harrison and Mollison talk with me about defensive architecture, about the increasingly aggressive displacement faced by poor and homeless people in downtown Victoria, 
and about some of what is being done to push back against both of those things. We spoke by Skype from Victoria. Hi, my name is Ashley Mollison, and I'm a community organizer with the Alliance Against Displacement, which is a group that organizes with Indigenous and working class people in Victoria, in Vancouver, and the Lower Mainland. And we're primarily working with people that are homeless and who are facing evictions in those cities. So I moved here about 10 years ago and started organizing with the Vancouver Island Public Interest Research Group. I then got hooked up with some community organizations and I was working with SOLID, the Society of Living Illicit Drug Users, which is an organization run by and for people who use drugs. Did some other work in the field of harm reduction, all the while organizing with Harm Reduction Victoria, which was a organization that has been working here in the last decade fighting against the war on drugs and for other sort of like anti-poverty measures. And then I started organizing with Alliance Against Displacement, mostly through my work supporting residents at Superintent City, which was the tent city on the courthouse lawn. I started working there, organizing with people because I had relationships with people in the street community from my work downtown and also my previous organizing. So I organized with people at Tent City and then just been doing that ever since still working with residents that are now living in supportive housing, fighting for better conditions, fighting against the principle that just because you're poor or have a mental health issue or have a substance use issue, that means that you have to give up your rights to get housing. So that's the kind of work that we're doing now, defending tent cities and trying to improve supportive housing conditions. And my name is Stephen Harrison. I run a blog called NeedsMoreSpikes.com. And it highlights examples of defensive architecture in Victoria. My blog is something relatively new. I started it back in January. I came out of a couple things. So I've been aware of defensive architecture for a long time. The most common example, which a lot of people would know about, is like armrests on benches so people can't sleep there. So it's something that was always in the back of my mind. And then last year, when the provincial government announced that Victoria's tenth city was going to be replaced with a playground, the press release was like, oh, there's going to be something for everybody. And there'll be benches. And I tweeted something like, oh, I'm sure those benches will have armrests on them. Then somebody responded, well, the whole playground itself is going to be a piece of defensive architecture designed to displace the homeless and poor population. And that kind of set off a bit of a light bulb in my head, getting me thinking about this a bit more and wanting to write about it. I'm somebody who's not targeted by defensive architecture, so I kind of get to walk by it and maybe not notice it. And I wanted to write a piece or a blog that would bring attention to some of those things that so many people can just walk on by. These things are doing real harm by displacing people and making uh, homeless and poor Victorians primarily have to look for safer spaces, maybe further afield, and putting them at risk. We saw a really huge shift in Victoria around 2008. We were just talking about a project that started on a green space that was just outside a shelter, transitional housing facility and drop-in downtown Victoria. It's called the Pandora Green, and it's a place where people hang out. And in 2008, there was a proposal that went through the city to beautify the area. So the city spent $500,000 to remove benches and put a pathway through the middle of the green, removing trees where people could take shelter, putting in some planters that grew lettuce. We really saw that moment, I think, in Victoria as a huge moment that kind of marked the beginning of the gentrification of the city. And I always think that we're like 10 years behind Vancouver in gentrification, but I think now we're really seeing the developers move in, the disappearance of any sort of public space, 
the emergence of gates and walls and spikes, which Stephen's documenting, and a real criminalizing approach to homelessness that's been taking place over the last 10 years or so. So I would say we have a very pro-development council. We're very focused on trying to attract investment from tech center type people, lots of high-end luxury condos that are attracting tourists and people working in those sectors. We are a big tourist city, lots of boats coming in from all parts of the world, and a police force that's very much spends a lot of money and time focused on criminalizing the presence of people in public spaces, whether that be moving people along, jacking people up, taking belongings, moving people out of parks in the morning. We actually have the highest policing per capita than I think any other city in B.C., And yeah, I would say that the climate is not friendly to people who are racially and socially profiled as either low income or people of color. We're very much seeing the removal of any sort of spaces where people can take refuge or find safety in the inner city. We even see social services moving outside the downtown core. So people are really being forced to walk longer distances to get the things that they need. It's very rare that a person can even congregate with another person for longer than, you know, 10 minutes before cops are called on them. It sounds like one of the ways that these changes that have been happening to the city of Victoria over the last decade have been playing out has been through these changes in built form that you've been documenting on your blog, Stephen. What does that look like in practice on the ground and how has it been happening? Defensive architecture and things like that are very much entrenched in both the Victoria Police Department and City of Victoria policy. So they both refer to what's called crime prevention through environmental design, which I've heard some people call SEPTED for short. I've heard a counselor say that whenever a building changes use, so for instance, we recently had, uh, I think it used to be Central Care Home, which became low-income supportive housing. So they did what was called the SEPTED report and went and looked at this place and recommended a bunch of things, including some high fencing to block access to a stairwell in an area beside a building. They recommended putting like metal bars, essentially, on ledges that people would otherwise sit on and congregate on. So this was a Victoria police report that was going to BC Housing, which is a provincial government agency. And the city of Victoria in 2010 commissioned a policy document, which is called something like fences and gates and shutters or something like that. And that's all about SEPTED and making it sound very nice, like, oh, well, you can put a fence and it'll be beautiful. Like, I think the quote is, it brings delight to passersby because this fence example has some swirly bits in it. But that's all very much entrenched. And you see that anytime when the city is talking about a new building, if you look at a development proposal, it'll use this crime prevention through environmental design language, which is all about displacing people and moving them along. And you can even see, like, I think another quote, or this will be a paraphrase anyway, is about, We don't want to encourage unwanted use, such as like a place to sleep. So this is all entrenched in city and Victoria police and provincial government support for these policies that change how our city looks and is used. Unfortunately, there's no shortage of examples. The one I mentioned off the top, I think, was benches with armrests. So that's a very common one. You'll see that everywhere. And I found some quote that they'll be marketed to people looking for benches as having, I think, quote, anti-vagrant bars. So it's very clear cut what those are all about. Another example you'll see around town is if there's a planter, maybe there'll be like weird metal bolted to it so you couldn't sit on top of it. There'll be metal on low ledges so you can't sit on that. 
big fences everywhere. Like one of the first things I wrote about off the bat, we had a church putting in a very large fence that was walling off a space that was used by the street community. So fences are a huge one, often spiked, hence the name, needs more spikes. You'll see planters in alcoves. There was recently a story out of Vancouver about these giant concrete balls that were being put in alcoves, so it was pretty obvious why they were being put there. They had no function other than to displace people from that space. But Victoria is really no better off because you'll see examples of planters being in alcoves or one that I, again, had the privilege to walk on by before I started doing this work. There's one area that has uh, concrete raised protected light fixtures in the middle of these alcoves protruding from the ground. You know, it, maybe it looks nice to Joe Public, but it's another way to keep people from having a comfortable place to lie down. And there's other examples which maybe are more invisible. So, for example, the city has struck at least a couple of deals with a major developer in town, and they're building condo units and office buildings. And there's supposed to be public spaces in both of these developments, like public squares, and they've been kind of built that way and talked about by city council in that way. It's going to be great. There's going to be public space. But the signed agreement between the developer and the city says that it's up to the developer to curate the public they want in that space. So the agreements say things like that they can bar entry to or eject anyone who is loitering, for example, or sleeping, or and maybe more problematically, people who appear to be unconscious, they can eject from that space under the agreement. So those things could target anybody, but may quite possibly be used to disproportionately target poor and homeless Victorians. And so that's an invisible barrier to somebody like myself. I could wander into that space and think this is great. And I can sit down on my laptop and loiter as long as I want. But there's an invisible barrier once you cross that property line where the developer can decide at any moment they don't want you there. So those are a few examples. And it sounds like a pivotal moment in responding to the changes of the last decade was the tent city that you talked about. Tell listeners more about that. The tent city was set up on the lawn of the courthouse for 10 months, from November 2015 to August 2016. It was as a result of bylaws that are restricting people from camping during the day. So they're allowed to set up their tents in parks overnight, but they're not able to leave them set up during the day. And we have a housing crisis, huge numbers on wait lists, shelters full. And so there were about 150 people that wound up living on the site. People arrived there because it was provincial land, so it wasn't subject to the 7 to 7 bylaws that required people to take down their campsite every morning. So these were folks that previous to living there were in the other parks in the city in doorways and back alleys. There are also people that had been evicted from housing. They were people that couldn't get into the shelters because the shelters were full. And like I say, we're living in the middle of a housing crisis with hundreds of people on wait lists for social housing. Essentially, people asserted that they needed spaces like tent cities to look after their belongings and have safe places for their treasured possessions, places where they could look after one another. And as someone who had had relationships with people prior to tent city, I really saw what good tent city did for people and having a place where they didn't have the stress of having to be displaced every day. People could create homes and they created a community at tent city. Obviously, 150 people in one square block of a city is going to cause problems <laughs> no matter where you are. I witnessed people responding to issues immediately when they started and taking care of situations very well. But there were neighbors that complained. 
we had allies in the church that was right next door, but they had a school right next to them. And so they had a lot of pressure from parents around having a school next to people that use drugs and people with mental health conditions. So it was very much a blossoming of a dominant discourse that saw these people as unsafe and unfit for the neighborhood. The group called Mad as Hell ran a campaign to actively speak out against tent city residents. They petitioned the city to get 24-7 police surveillance of the site, which escalated a lot of the community responses that, you know, people were doing a good job looking after themselves. But then you have 24-7 police presence with people that are severely institutionalized and also traumatized by police. And I don't think that helped any. And then the government hired a social service agency to come and manage the tent city further taking away people's power and control over their lives and slowly moved people into housing. So I'd say, you know, we won a 147 units of social housing which is remarkable in a province that isn't building social housing anymore. But we are now organizing in that building. We have a residence council in that building, and we're still fighting for rights of people to have control and power over their own lives. The residents of the tent city had really amazing ideas about how to house themselves and how to create community. And it didn't look like 147 units in one building that operates with staff at the front door where you have to buzz in and get approved to get in, where your guests have to sign in and show ID, where police are allowed in to review footage of the cameras that are on you every day. That wasn't the vision that people had for the kind of housing that they wanted. And I think like there were a lot of really great ideas that were coming out of Tent City and people were envisioning different models of living together and different styles of community. And so it was seen as a victory for us to win that many units of social housing. I think the residents, the ones that I definitely organize with right now, would rather be in a tent city than be in the housing that they were given. And after the shutdown, you saw a campaign right away to get a playground on that site. Playgrounds are great. I have no problems with playgrounds. But the motivation behind the playground, and you can trace it back, was because people, and I don't know why they thought this, because the city bylaws didn't apply, but they thought if we have a playground here, And our city bylaws say you can't camp in a playground. So they thought if we have a playground here, then nobody will be able to camp even overnight in this space. So you saw a big campaign to get a playground put here. And then you saw the provincial government, who owns that property, support that and say that the property would be closed at nighttime and that there would absolutely be no camping allowed on the site. So the playground itself will no longer be a safe space to be for homeless or poor people, who I'm sure will, if they try to use that space during the day, I'm sure they will be subject to immense scrutiny. And Stephen, what's your process like in working on the blog? How do you go from an instance of defensive architecture to a a fully-fledged piece that you want to publish and circulate? Every other weekend, I go around and walk some different streets to see if I can find any new examples to come up with some different themes, whether I take it from there or an idea from Ashley or somebody else in the community. After I have that theme, whatever it might be, I try to see if there's anything online, either in city council documents, perhaps, if they've talked about a development proposal, for example, or newspaper archives have been very helpful, online newspaper archives. They've certainly helped me find some examples, like even going back to the 90s of offhand references to the province, planting, for example, rose bushes in a place to displace some people. But usually that's what the research process kind of looks like, and I cobble together any photos along the similar theme that supported or show these examples in the city. Or uh, if I find them online, like if a developer has posted what their plan is, then I can use that as a screenshot or an image. 
And then I'll bounce some of those ideas off of my partner or somebody like Ashley to see if I've made any missteps or if they have any other ideas or feedback to improve the piece. And then I'll put it online and push it out the door on social media or I have an email sign up list that I email out to people as well. I think it's been really helpful, honestly, to have Stephen document and publicize the kind of invisible and not so subtle, (laughs) the Mm -hmm. subtle and not so subtle ways in which we exclude foreign homeless people from our community. He's helped me to understand, and I think a lot of the folks that are doing the -the on-the-ground work and who are living in places where they feel this exclusion, helping us to understand that planning is very political and the work that's being done at the city around designing and architectural design, environmental design is really changing the culture and the landscape that we're organizing in. We can't keep up to the changing face of Victoria. We feel it in our communities and we are fighting with people that are trying to just get some sleep and (laughs) trying to not have their stuff stolen and trying to find a place where they can use drugs safely. And it's just pretty incredible, I guess, for me to see that all of this stuff is so intentional about creating the city where homeless and low-income people are not considered citizens. So it's depressing, but it's also really helpful for me. What else has the Alliance Against Displacement been doing to resist these things, not just the defense of architecture, but the overall targeting and displacement of poor and homeless people in Victoria? The big project, of course, was Tent City. Now we are defending the right of people to camp at Reason Park, which is otherwise known as the Whale Wall. The city is undergoing a project now to revision the Whale Wall to basically put in benches and trees and planters and a big path in the middle and perhaps a playground. (laughs) So now we're working with residents in that park to defend their right to seek shelter. A lot of people that are down there have been there actually for a year. It's a place where people are seeking long-term residency, unfortunately intense. It's one of the last places in the city where people aren't being harassed significantly, although that's changing. We try lots of different strategies. Usually the nuts and bolts are building political unity amongst the group. So starting with really talking about people's experiences and doing research in those areas with people just figure out what's actually going on for them. And they talk to us about what they want to do and what they want and what kind of world they want to live in. We build statements of unity from that basic information, grassroots style research. And then we normally try to work within the system first. For example, with Tent City, we really tried to work with the lawyers that we had to communicate with the provincial government to ask them to come down to the camp to hear from residents about what their needs are and what kind of housing that they need to survive and thrive. And when that doesn't work, then we go more public. So doing things like press conferences and press releases and speaking with media and educating media mostly, and then hopefully the public through that on the particular circumstances people are going through. We do rallies and protests. We do a lot of letter writing to the city. Depends what the target is, I guess, but with Reason Park and this whale wall, we've done a lot of letter writing, encourage people to talk to the city about how any development of this park is going to displace residents that have nowhere to go and the need to challenge the bylaws that are displacing people every day. So we go to city council, we do lots of things, lots of different tactics. 
The other thing we're doing, like I said, is working with people that are living in supportive housing to assert more power and control over their homes and lives and working against social service providers and housing providers that are creating jail-like environments for housing. We ran a campaign called No Cops on Outreach. It's a campaign that was opposing the city giving money to police for mental health outreach teams which the city won, but we put up a good fight against that in trying to shift the dominant discourse of police as moving into a helper role from an enforcement role and moving more into like a community policing role. So we are constantly doing work around criminalization and trying to speak about the harms of criminalization and displacement for low-income people in the city. How would Victoria be different if it were to take some initial but substantial steps towards no longer displacing, no longer harassing, no longer attacking poor and homeless people. What would that Victoria look like? To be honest with you, I feel like I want to run a campaign that just says, hands off homeless people. I think that we need spaces in our city where people can just hang out, true public spaces (laughs) that are not regulated and surveilled and where people aren't criminalized and displaced. And I think like we really saw at Tent City what people can make of themselves and their communities when they're left alone. And they're able to participate politically in society, not just forced in this like constant flux and survival mode that we like to keep people in in our societies. And so I would really like to see places where people can put up shelter and can hang out and just get to know each other, have places where community can interact, different communities can interact with each other. I'd like to see housing that's actually affordable to low-income people and not just rich, yuppie condos. And yeah, I'd like to see less spikes and less Mm -hmm. gates because I think it's sending a clear message about who belongs and who doesn't. And I'd like to see the priority in downtown Victoria be the people that use the space in downtown Victoria, which is people that need to be close to services, right? When some of these examples went up or a couple fences fairly recently or within the last few months, I think we saw the mayor and maybe one or two councillors talk about how, well, they didn't really like fences, but that's the way it is. Well, that doesn't have to be the way it is. So they have entrenched, as I mentioned earlier, in their policies like crime prevention through environmental design. You don't have to buy into that if you don't want to. You don't have to require people to take a lens to how can I stop people from sleeping in an alcove every time they redevelop a property. It doesn't need to be that way. So I wrote in a recent piece about all these Victoria Police Department crime prevention through environmental design reports, which were delivered to provincial government agencies who frankly have the resources if they want or have the ear of policymakers or our policymakers themselves to, you know, really combat some of the structures that leave people in visible poverty and homelessness. But instead, we have them going to Vic PD and asking, how can we move these people along in terms of a policy shift? Maybe don't do that. (laughs) Maybe build housing. Yeah, maybe build housing. You have been listening to my interview with Stephen Harrison and Ashley Mollison, both of Victoria, British Columbia. Harrison writes at the Needs More Spikes blog, which you can find at needsmorespikes.com. And Mollison is an organizer with the Alliance Against Displacement, which you can find at stopdisplacement.ca. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to suggest topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. 
I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week.